This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. And my, so my name is John Evans. I'm a professor of sociology. I'm also on the Burke Lectureship Board and also the co-director of a new entity here on campus called the Institute for Practical Ethics, which is co-sponsoring tonight's lecture. The speaker we have tonight is perfectly aligned with both the mission of the Institute for Practical Ethics and the Burke Lectureship. Tonight we'll be hearing from Laurie Zaloth, the Margaret Burton Professor of Religion and Ethics at the University of Chicago. We uh, discussed today and we agreed that Laurie and I first met uh, 21 years ago uh, at a, uh, a Government Ethics Commission meeting about human cloning, if you remember that debate from the late 1990s. So I've been lucky to know Lori for over 20 years. Her career accomplishments are incredible and incredibly varied, especially compared to most academics. She began her career as a neonatal nurse and later became a professor of social ethics and Jewish philosophy at San Francisco State, later moved to Northwestern, where she was the founding director of the Program in Ethics and Civic Life and the founding director of the Center for Bioethics, Science, and Society. I can only just touch on the so many accomplishments she's had over these years, but as exemplars, she's been the president of the American Academy of Religion, which is the primary scholarly association of religious studies and other cognate fields, the president of the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, which is the lead uh, institution for bioethicists, She's been on a large number of advisory boards for large scientific projects, served on government commissions like the National Institutes of Health Human Genome Project, and even on the Ethics Committee for NASA. I continue to be marveled by the breadth of Lori's knowledge. The last time we saw each other, she was giving a talk about how the writings of mid-20th century Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas could help us understand a contemporary ethical problem of scientific development. Earlier this afternoon, we were meeting with a scientist where she was deliberating about the sexual practices of mosquitoes with one of our esteemed biology faculty members. I never cease to be amazed by the breadth of what she knows. Lori is part of a group in these bioethical debates that believes that our contemporary technological skills require us to ask the deepest of questions, far beyond narrow debates that are important, but narrow debates about the safety of a technology or whether participants have given their informed consent. Instead, it's important to ask the questions underneath that. And many people reach to different sources for this deep wisdom. For example, former Burke lecturer Stanley Hauerwas would reach into the Protestant religious tradition for that. Lori reaches into the Jewish tradition. Some reach into a particular form of secular philosophy. Whatever the source, and even if we do not share the faith in that source, we can respectfully learn from each other. And I think that is the central purpose of the Burke Lectureship. So tonight we're extra lucky that Lori will be bringing her wisdom to the topic of gene drives, one of the potentially most powerful technologies to emerge in recent years. In fact, a group of biology professors here in the Division of Biology are working on gene drive technology that would reduce the incidence of malaria. 
as she's going to be talking about today. But doing so raises a number of fundamental ethical challenges and concerns for us. Um, so it's quite fortuitous that Lori is here tonight to share her wisdom with us. And without further ado, please welcome Lori Zaloth. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. It's good to have an old friend introduce you. And it's good because he didn't say some things, too. Right? Okay. So I'm going to begin with some gratitude. First of all, um, thank you very much for bringing me here. This is one of the two places in the, United, in, in the world, actually, where gene drives are making a dramatic appearance. There's thoughtful scholarship there and another place I'm going to mention. But it's really a privilege to be at UCSD. Thanks, of course, to Father Eugene Burke, whose vision inspired this sort of talk. As, as a Jewish ethicist, I'm actually completely delighted to speak um, on behalf of his name because he was so devoted to interfaith discourse and that's very important to me as well and also these are the people that have helped me think about science, I want to begin with thanking them, this is something I learned from scientists you always thank your lab partners and these were mine, especially the Boucher Foundation who recently funded two months in Geneva where I could spend time thinking all day every day about gene drives and malaria Okay, this is the plan of the talk do I have your informed consent for this? <laughs> okay, so first I'm going to do a little bit of science, and then I'm going to do a little bit of history on talking about malaria, thinking that it's a central problem. Then I'm going to take up some ethical questions, and as usual, we never solve them, but we're going to raise them. I'm going to talk then about some theologies of science in addition to the ethical issues that gene drives raise and that malaria raises. Um, and then I'm going to talk about how hard it is really to make policy in the face of these competing ethical and theological demands. And then I'm going to say thank you once again. Fair enough? <laughs> right? Okay. So this is Chrisley Hall. One of the exquisitely beautiful places. This is in, um, this is in U the UK. This is where the Royal Society brings people like me and John together in these elite <laughs> venues to talk about genetics. And I was invited there because, well, I know a lot about genetics. And so what scientists do is they come up with something really sort of extraordinary, perhaps odd, and then they bring people like me, moral philosophers, and people like John, sociologists, and they say, well, so what do you think? They're worried about what you'll think, actually. So they ask us to interpret these, these dilemmas and these discourses. And we did. I was there with my usual toolkit of answers and responses about genetics. Um, but I was surprised. Because I met this man. This is Austin Burke. And I heard about a new idea, this idea of gene drives. Now, Burke's been working on this for almost 40 years, since he was an undergraduate. He's Canadian. Ontario, lots and lots of mosquitoes. Um, and in 2000, 2003, he published a book based on what had been already a decade of research on this interesting phenomenon in nature called gene drives. This is the book, 2003. I recommend it highly. It is very thick, um, and it is very fascinating. And after I met him, within a week, he had sent me this book and said, read this and then call me. Okay? And how he explained how his new idea was this. Evolution usually works by getting a 50-50 chance, right? A 50-50 chance that you're going to inherit a particular characteristic from a parent. Now, it was first described, of course, religiously by a monk, Gregor Mendel. Um, that's why we call it Mendelian genetics. And 
He almost completely did it fairly. He cheated a little bit with those peas. But we understand that he taught us that the offspring will inherit the gene, and the frequency of this gene in the future generations will be just about what it is in the present generations. Okay. So a gene drive biases Mendelian inheritance, biases the 50-50 inheritance. Gene drives are often described as an exception to those conventional rules of inheritance. There's a preferential inheritance of a particular gene from generation to generation so that it increases in frequency in any population. Even a gene, in fact, that has bad effects for an individual can still be passed on preferentially. And it doesn't really, um, the, even a harmful gene, which can't give you any benefit, can still be passed on if it benefits the entire population. All things being equal, this gene, be it good, be it bad, whatever, will increase in frequency um, to, in 20 generations to 100%. What an interesting phenomenon in nature. And Bert found it everywhere. He found it in transposable elements, in a thing called gamete killers, in um, maternal effect killers, in homing endonuclease. He found many, many types. He said just underneath our normal biological rules of evolution exists what he called a zoo of possibilities. So that's interesting. A phenomena brought to light as a fifth force in evolution. These are the usual forces you know about. Mutation, migration, selection, natural selection as in Darwin, and of course genetic drift. And he said gene drives are another force in these usual ways of thinking about it. So the basic criteria for the development of gene drive modified organisms to use this, where this occurs, is only in sexual reproduction, where you have genes from two parents. In, in um, insects and other animals that have very short, relatively short generation times, and where the, the driving element remains stable across 20 generations, right? And then the population structure is appropriate to your desired outcome if you were going to ever use these. Now, there were two ideas about how to use them. And in fact, what's really interesting is that Bert's idea uses one, and the University of California at San Diego uses the other. One idea is called an elimination drive. And another idea is called a um, replacement drive. Now, they're going to use, how they're going to make this drive work is to use things you've heard about. CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9, a new way of cutting and pasting in the human genome and in the mosquito genome could be used. Before that, there's things called talons or zinc fingers. These are all different words for devices, genetic devices, that cut and then repair genetic sequences. So you can use them either to eliminate a population or to change the characteristics of a population. The gene drives work by, again, biasing preferential inheritance and making sure that that one gene, in this case little red dots, goes all the way through 20 generations, 100% of an effect. Now, the Burst lab idea began this way. He's since changed it in a new paper, but his idea was to put a drive in the Y chromosome that when it was confronted with a sequence in the X chromosome, destroyed it, so that only Y chromosome eggs would be reproduced and no female eggs. Only males would be born and no females, using what's called a driving, driving Y. When CRISPR is um, discovered, of course, this got much easier. This is, it could be done much, much more quickly. And the UC um, San Diego people were the, some among the first people to use CRISPR in this particular way in mosquitoes. And here's a little picture. Would that science would be like this in real life? You know, cut and paste, like in the New York Times. But basically, that's the idea. And let's all hope that it works that way every time. OK. So why is this important? Suddenly, it's important. 
Suddenly San Diego is saying, we've got this new idea, we've got this lab, we've got millions of dollars to do this work. Why? Why do something this radical, this obscure? And here's why. I think it's because of malaria. Malaria is a very serious disease, and like most Americans, I only thought about it when I had to travel outside the borders. And my doctor said, oh, malaria pills, right? I never thought about malaria, but it's an incredibly serious disease, sometimes fatal. It's a parasitic infection. It occurs in neither 100 countries worldwide. Both adults and children who contact malaria experience a fever and anemia because the red blood cells are destroyed. If the infection is severe and crosses into the brain, coma and death can occur, and can occur so suddenly that a child playing marbles in the morning can be dead by the afternoon. Now, between 500 to six to 400,000 deaths a year, 2 million infections a year, malaria disproportionately affects people, particularly children, in the lowest income countries in the world, low and middle income countries in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and South America. It's mankind's oldest disease, um, probably been around since before there were humans. Human malaria is caused by one of five protozoan parasites of the Plasmodia genome, genus. The, um, the parasite in this remarkably intricate and one can only say beautiful biological way is carried in two places. In the one place, it's carried in the gut of the mosquito where it reproduces sexually, it mates and reproduces and creates, um, and creates small little, little parasites. And these parasites migrate to the outside of the mosquito's gut, float inside the abdominal cavity up to the salivary gland, into the mouth, and when it bites you, those parasites are transferred into your bloodstream. They go first to the liver and then into your bloodstream. And it's a remarkably weird and unusual way to transmit a disease, but that's the hand we were dealt as humans. Only females bite because they need the blood to mature their eggs, not because they're hungry for blood. They eat nectar, okay? And males don't bite at all. Now, three out of 3,500 species are responsible for the majority of African deaths. Important number, when people worry about elimination of a species or dramatic changes in nature, remember how many kinds of mosquitoes there are, and most Africans are killed by one, actually, one of these three. Many kinds of mosquito species, they're very widespread, they're highly adaptable, they're, of course, here in, in San Diego. You only need a teaspoon of water or a Coke cap full of water and that's enough to breed mosquitoes. Um, meals vary by the species. Sometimes they like to eat cows. Sometimes they like to eat bunny rabbits. These like to eat people. Um, and therefore, you can look at mosquitoes and say, it's those older females causing all the trouble. Okay. Only one of all these species is the most significant in sub-Saharan Africa, where the death rate is the highest. And that mosquito is called Anopheles gambi. It's the carrier of plasmodium, and it carries the worst form of the illness, called forcipian malaria. Now, human beings have tried to eradicate mosquitoes for well over a century. Malaria co-evolved with, with primates, all primates, including us. There's traces of massive death, and then we can know this because people have made adaptations to what must have been massive selective pressure. There's, um, for one kind of malaria, there's a, called a Duffy negative, which makes the red blood cells um, smooth and not able to be um, invaded by the, by the um, plasma, by the plasmodium. There's a G6PD variant, there's thalassemias, there's sickle cell disease, and all of these mutations 
uh, show us the trace of where malaria has been in the world really before history began. When soon as people began writing history, in our first records of written history, written discourse, they wrote about malaria. They wrote about a shaking fever. They wrote about the chills and the heat in the Vedas, right? Mentioned in Hebrew scriptures, mentioned in Egyptian mummy writing, right? Hieroglyphics, of course, in, the, in Greek and Roman texts as well. One of the first things that human commented on was this mysterious illness. There was a long inquiry to figure out how on earth did you catch this? And of course, malaria, bad air, because they understood it was associated with swamps. By the 19th century, they had figured out some things even before they knew that malaria was caused by mosquitoes. They found something called quinine from the bark of a tree. It was actually discovered by Jesuits who noticed the Native Americans in, um, in Peru eating it, and they brought it back. It was called Jesuit powder, and um, it actually was distributed in Europe because it worked. Quinine still the molecule very effective at reducing the fever and also eliminating the parasites from the bloodstream. Um, they understood you had to drain the swamp. They began to understand about using screens, um, bed nets, avoidance of night exposure, trying to kill the little larvae, using insecticides. And finally, the most effective thing is to just move away. Right? Um, as nutrition improved, as farming becomes more mechanized, and as people begin to eat enough, and they move from an open shack into a city, malaria begins to disappear in North America. It was the scourge of colonial America. The scourge of colonial America probably did in Jamestown, and it begins to disappear even before people understand that it's mosquitoes. Humans had developed, as I said, some capacity for resistance to falcipian and to vivax, the two types, and um, thanks to, by the way, new research that was just announced last week at Scripps, they're beginning to understand the molecular mechanism for how this resistance takes place. So thank you, Scripps. Thank you, San Diego, for having Scripps. And there you go. So enter the non-immune into the world. The Europeans began to explore and later stayed to exploit the resources of Africa, and they were not immune at all to malaria. And they began to die in terrible numbers terrible numbers, unlike the um, Africans who had developed some acquired immunity. When Europeans came to America from England, where malaria was very, very common, very prevalent, they brought vivax, the kind that they had in Europe, to America. And when they came and brought slaves, that's when falcipian malaria, the very deadly type, was carried over. People who had malaria in Africa, who carried falcipian in their blood, taken over against their will, enslaved, bringing with him the, the, the plasmodium, the deadly kind. And when they, um, malaria then becomes not just a local problem, an African problem, a Mediterranean problem, it becomes a global problem. In fact, some of the worst malaria epidemics are after the First World War near the Arctic Circle, right? Now, this is a map of malaria deaths in the United States in 1870. You can see my state, Illinois, gets hit particularly hard around the end of the Great Lakes, the swampy end of the Great Lakes, and it comes all the way down the eastern seaboard. The Carolinas famously were malarious, Florida, and um, why they weren't on the tip, because no one can go there, but around to Texas, all the way up in the Mississippi Valley. The problem of 1890. In 1890, more people died from malaria than any other single illness in the colony. In the, in the, in the, malaria begins to retreat, and here you can see the area getting smaller and smaller. There's a little um, uptick 
in 1945, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But the death rate began to go down even before people understood exactly how the mechanisms work. And then our research took an enormous turn. By the 1900s, three people, three men, um, Richard Ross of the UK, stationed in India, Alphonse Leveron of France, stationed in Algeria, and, um, and Grassi, um, Grassi is stationed, um, Polonius Grassi is stationed, is not stationed, he's, a, he's someone who studies mosquitoes in, in Italy. These three men begin to put together the vector, the mosquito, where in the mosquito, what kind of a mosquito, where they found transforming how malaria is understood. And then people made the link and could educate about malaria, mosquitoes meant anopheles, they looked like this, and people could think about changing it. In the United States, Malaria was still very, very common in the American South until, actually, the 1930s, when Roosevelt begins to, in, uh, begins to uh, fund the Tennessee Valley Authority and the swampy lowlands of Georgia and of Mississippi and of Louisiana and of Tennessee begin to be organized. And people understood when you began to create a lake like that, you had to do malaria control. After a few terrible tries and mistakes, they got it right. And that's why the lakes in the TVA authority area go up and down with some sort of regularity, it's because um, they were trying to get rid of the mosquitoes. And then the WPA came into the south and they began cleaning up the swamp and doing campaigns. And one of the lovely things that the WPA did was the Writers Project. And the Writers Project has a whole section where people listen to the stories of malaria from the poor of the American South that are really quite moving about how people tried to cure it, what people were doing, what the folk remedies were, all of which were carefully gathered by the Franklin Roosevelt administration attending to the poor. Malaria is not eradicated from the United States despite the TBA, despite the WPA, despite all the efforts in the science until 1951. Why? in part because the war, for the first time, took millions of Americans into malarious areas. Not only the South Pacific, where my dad was sent to go sail around the Philippines, but in Italy, in Northern Africa, in Western Africa, American men by the millions went into these places and they immediately got terribly sick with malaria. And some of the worst defeats were because troops were too sick to fight. And MacArthur is said to have said, a third of my army is in the hospital, a third are recovering from malaria, and uh, I only have a third of an army to fight with. Malaria, illness, and deaths took more lives and sickened more people than were killed or wounded in the Second World War and among American troops. It's an enormous toll. And the, they began a campaign to, in fact, do uh, a massive anti-malarial Campaign. They said it was just as much important to defeat the Japanese as it was, and, and, the, um, and, the, and the horrible caricatures, as it was as malaria was important. So notice this, enemies both, it's your job to help eliminate them. And, of course, here's a local note. Dr. Seuss gets very involved. <laughs> Not only here, but, of course, he was at war, um, he was, and he ran some of the most important campaigns. He develops this creature, Anne, Anopheles, Anne, um, this is the cleanest, most cleaned up of all the ones. Most of his cartoons look more like this, right? And you can just imagine the ones that I'm not showing on prime time. Right? Um, but the army took it quite seriously and began to do serious research on two things. One of the things that happened was they captured what people said might be a cure 
and it was chloroquine, but it had to be tested. And here's my University of Chicago note. The University of Chicago became the major center that ran the Army research. This is pre-DARPA. This is um, Army research was run by the University of Chicago by two scientists, um, Lowell Cogswell, who was instrumental in the malaria campaign in the American South, and Ali Alving, by all accounts, a very genial man who ran the experiment at Stateville Prison. And what they did was they took um, malarial patients who were in mental institutions. And why did people have malaria in mental institutions? It's a funny story, because it turned out that syphilis, right, which was a terrible disease in the 1900s, early 20th century, was cured in some cases if you got a very high fever. And so they figured out in, that you would take, Germans actually figured this out, the guy got the Nobel Prize, um, Drag, and he said, if you get people sick with malaria, they will no longer have the signs of cerebral syphilis, the worst kind. And so they began using it not just on syphilitic patients, but on many patients at mental institutions, conveniently located next to Stateville, and they took mosquitoes, fed them on these patients, took the mosquitoes in little cages to Stateville Prison, and began doing experiments on prisoners. Why this is interesting, as opposed to, it is interesting just in and of itself, but it's also interesting because it became a feature of the Nuremberg trial. When Germans, when the defense of the Germans um, found out about this, they said in the records of the Nuremberg trial, you use prisoners just like us. For, they used it for malaria experiments, and so did we. So this was um, these two physicians um, testing one of their patients. Now, massive new tools were developed in the war, and as you can see, a theme, the scientists were, were initially army doctors from various countries. The massive new tools were developed in the war, and that's why there's this, this sense of warlike language all about, about the war and mosquitoes. DDT, the most powerful pesticide the world had ever seen, was developed in 1939, and it was not really used until the end of the war. It was capable of killing hundreds of different kinds all at once, but most importantly, it could be painted on walls, and it would stay lethal for six months. Um, it was first only used as part of the war effort for lice, and then it was sent to the South Pacific, where it was used massively, massive spraying campaigns, began to wipe out mosquitoes, and malaria rates began to drop tremendously in the, in the Pacific theater of war. And then people began to think, huh, we could do this everywhere, not just in war but maybe we should do it everywhere. And new commissions began, and they began to say, if we use this new DDT and this new chloroquine that we tested in Stateville, we could wipe out malaria, we could end it. And that's the beginning of the story of the WHO, the World Health Organization, began in, in the birth of two campaigns, a campaign to vaccinate everyone against smallpox and a campaign to rid the world of malaria. And they really tried, but they failed. And this failure is part of the central history of our story tonight. Mosquitoes developed resistance to DDT because it was used so widely. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid in 1950 in Los Angeles, people sprayed it on their gardens, right? DDT was everywhere because it was so effective. And because it was so effective and so widespread, mosquitoes developed resistance, not just malaria mosquitoes, but all of them. Um, it's extremely difficult, by the way, to spray every house in every remote area three times a year, right? Mud walls, it didn't last as long on mud walls. You had to move everything out of your house, get sprayed, move everything back in, in every house, in every remote villages, three times a year, tremendously expensive. They never had the money to do it, 
and it began to trail off. And then the malarial plasmodium began to develop a resistance to chloroquine. So suddenly the spray and the drug both lost efficacy. And people lost their acquired immunity. When this was stopped, right, people who had been getting malaria all the time and developed a kind of immunity to it lost that and became subject to devastating um, death from malaria unexpectedly. And then this happened. Okay? Rachel Carson wrote the best-selling book, The Silent Spring, in which she argued that DDT entered the food chain and accumulated in the fatty tissues of animals, including us, and cows cancer and genetic damage. A single application, as she said, as all the malariologists knew, sprayed on, got into the food chain, and was there for generations, even if it was diluted by rainwater. And Carson said that DDT should be banned. And in fact, in the final blow of the, anti of the eradication campaign, DDT was banned. And so in California, we have many more pelicans. And in West Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, many more mosquitoes. Now, it's a stalemate. And that's our situation now. Our current methods are from the 19th century, as I said. They could focus on either drug therapy and vector control. We're down to about one drug, and the drug is artemisian. Artemisian, actually, interestingly enough, is a third century drug developed in China that was lost and then rediscovered in the Cultural Revolution by scientists looking through the old books and trying to find indigenous cures, but it was withheld from most of the rest of the world really until the 80s. It's still quite effective in combination, but not anymore in Southeast Asia where it's beginning to develop a resistance. So we're in trouble with that loss of that drug. The mosquitoes develop resistance to every drug so far, even to artemisian and co-delivered artemisian. Bed nets are problematic. I know many of you probably think, well, bed nets. I've donated money for bed nets. Those rock stars donate money for bed nets. But in fact, bed nets are not, not a panacea. In fact, bed nets look like shrouds. And in most of West Africa, they're associated with death, so they had to go back and dye them all green so they didn't look like white shrouds. Um, they, are, they need replacement often. They're hot in these hot climates. They make really good fishing nets. So if you have to make a choice between putting one baby under a net and fishing for your family five or six, you're going to choose that. Um, they only make space for one child, and they were very expensive. And the World Bank decided it would be a good thing to sell them instead of giving them away. Okay, so bed nets are problematic. And then there's also like small things. Like you've all had babies, right? You know, babies poop when they sleep and pee when they sleep, and your bed net gets dirty and needs to be scrubbed off along with the anti-mosquito insecticide that's on your bed net. So they're not as effective as they should be, and they're a, a part of the solution, but surely not everything. And the world malaria rates, which used to be falling precipitously, in the last two years have leveled, and they're flat. At a stalemate, malaria rates flat, and this is before global warming and before massive, the, the massive wars in the DRC. Now, enter gene drives. Everyone knows some new idea has to help, or malaria will continue as it has been. And thus, the idea of using gene drives discovered in nature, naturally occurring, to be turned into weapons, what can one say, against the mosquitoes carrying the malaria. Now, the idea in the bird lab is to reduce transmission by simply reducing the number of females, as I said. Another idea, of course, is the one that, that um, colleagues here are using, thinking of changing the mosquito so it can't 
it, it can't carry the, uh, the parasite. This is the Target Malaria Project. Target Malaria is working in Burkina Faso, Mali, and Uganda, three countries where it hopes to establish labs and projects of their own run by scientists of their own. The most developed one is Burkina Faso, but they've been doing community engagement in all three. So I'm only going to talk about Burkina Faso tonight. Now, this is the members of Target Malaria. As you can see, they're from all over the world, America, Africa, the UK. Um, I'm a member of Target Malaria as a, as a bioethicist. She's one of the independent advisors for the project. It's a not-for-profit academic and community-led project that has decided not to take profit for the science that they do. Um, it's because of that they, they decided not to patent, and all their specialists are being trained in Africa, North America, and Europe. We're the Independent Ethics Advisory Board. We provide oversight and guidance, not, again, not for profit, not for pay, reviewing ethics-related um, issues for the project. But the opposition to this project is really quite powerful. While it may seem intuitively obvious to me as an ethicist, malaria is a horrible disease. Here's a powerful tool. Let's try it. There's been considerable opposition to any kind of gene drives, be it for malaria, be it for, um, for using as a project of, of de-extinction. Why? Because people care about biodiversity. Now, these are not crazy ideas. The DDT experience taught people that, in fact, you might ruin the world even intending to do good. And so at the biodiversity protocol meetings, it's been a site of opposition to gene drives in general. There is, in fact, a general anti-science bias. There's people in our country who don't vaccinate their children because they don't trust it, right? A general anti-science bias has been growing. And everyone's seen Jurassic Park and knows nature will find a way, right? Now, many of these objections are really familiar to us. Um, one objection is as old as the first conquest of malaria in Ross and Leveron and Grassi's time. Radical changes in the disease burden will have dramatic effects in social economic terms. Many more children will live. And since the Victorian era, that's made some people uneasy. Many more children living will have changes, will have dramatic effects, right? But it's a horrible thing to think they don't want to do that. But it's raised at almost every turn. Two is that you can't trust scientists. They're just drawn for profit to tell the, um, to tell, they can't trust them to tell the truth. And two is you shouldn't eliminate a species. That somehow taking a species out of the ecosystem is just inherently wrong, philosophically wrong. People's worries that it's unsafe, to be sure, clearly high risk. And finally, it's not worth the risk. And here people use the phrase, better safe than sorry. Better safe than sorry. And that's actually referred to as the precautionary principle. If you can't know that it's going to be better, let's be careful, let's better, better be safe than sorry. And I'm not just making up a coy phrase. The phrase, better be safe than sorry, is actually in the WHO arguments when they describe the precautionary principle and in the EU's statements about their own principle of precaution. Now, people worry about safety. Now they should think about a couple things. First of all, there's many traditional methods to keep mosquitoes in one place and humans in another. There's the methods of containment. All infectious agents, Ebola, polio, smallpox, exist in the world but are contained right, by the containment levels one through four. There's controlled releases. There's doing this project slowly, first in a lab in London, next in a lab in Italy, a little warmer, better for mosquitoes, next in a lab in Burkina Faso, then into the wild, in the small release, 
and then into the wild into a large release, that could be done. That's one way to think about safety. There's been um, a history of using biological controls in the wild. One example of this is the cassava mealybug. So cassavas were a wonderful plant, root plant, in Latin America, and they were brought over by the Jesuits who colonized Portugal and brought over to Portuguese colonies in West Africa where they became a main food staple, a crop predominantly done and, and controlled by women, by the way, very low in protein, right? <laughs> but they didn't bring over um, the cassava mealybugs that ate cassavas as a predator until about 1970. In 1970, somebody brought the mealybugs over and everyone began eating all the cassava. The mealybugs grew and they thought, cassavas, here I am, and they ate them, yeah. right? And the crop was almost wiped out, causing extraordinary economic hardship in the same zone, West Africa, until someone figured out what eats cassava mealybugs and they figured out this wasp did and they brought the wasp over and that's been effective. For the last 15 years, 95% of the mealybugs are eaten by their normal predators. So the whole cassette Cassaba, mealybug, was is all working. And that's, we didn't hear anything about that, though that's a biological control widely distributed in the same area. But the trouble is, many people have suggested that there could be a reverse to the drive. And I want to address that directly by saying, maybe not. The first theory was you could recall a drive if things went awry. Um, but the science of it is really problematic. It may reverse, it may not be stable. And meanwhile, the guide RNA and the CRISPR-Cas9, that will still remain species, whatever you do. That can't be reversed. Okay. Regulatory issues seem important to me. And they should seem important to you as well. Because why? Because this is the first time that a very low-cost, relatively easy technology, you can buy the pieces on eBay for $10,000 apparently, um, could have a very large effect. Right? So we should think about how to regulate that kind of powerful technology. Now, many people have done that. The House of Lords Select Committee reviewed it. The Tropical Medicine Commission, or WHO, reviewed it. The Newfield Commission reviewed it. The African Union, our National Academy of Sciences, and many groups of gene drive scientists have suggested ways to control it. The National Academy, in particular, said, pay attention. If you are a historian of science and engineering, you can see how discoveries related to theory, observation, and technology change our understanding of both the natural world, really, and of ourselves and our own power. The current pace of change is fast, and in general, genetics is very thrilling, but the pace of change in gene-drive technology is breathtaking, quite the language from scientists, and they looked at this to think about ways to control it. Now, Regulatory ethics, like me, in our first slide, still uses the toolkit that we learned at Asilomar when we first began regulating DNA, right? The literature of bioethics, even good bioethics, even Evans bioethics, is largely entirely based on a framework we've developed for thinking about cloning, genomes, genetic testing, gene therapy. We worry about autonomy. We worry about consent of an individual. We worry about a historically universally applicable code. We worry about privacy. And we like these things because we know them well. And we've all written papers on them and we just know what to say. But we don't know what to do really for something where autonomy isn't really the issue, right? Community might be more relevant. Where the consent of an individual really isn't the point. Where you need a consent of a community. Where 
a universal rule for every single African village in three different countries across the continent may not be applicable. And finally, where privacy is sort of a silly concept in the context of these, uh, these villages where the drug would be released. Why is it like this? Well, in part because it's really hard to think carefully about malaria. It's a big topic. And usually it's thought about by people in public health based on a simple principle of utilitarianism. The whole way we think about this is the greatest good for the greatest number and the ontological issue, the person that's conceived of by public health ethics is a member of a group, right? And in genetics, we think of this this very powerful individual with desires But in public health, we think about someone in a utilitarian system with no particular rights that can't be subsumed by the goals of the group. Secondly, the history of malaria and its eradication is long and complex. Look how much time it just took me speaking breathlessly fast to to run through the history of malaria, just hitting some high points. And I could tell you many more stories about how malaria was found and researched and the competitions between scientists It's a complicated story. Thirdly, the science of that parasite invasion is extremely complicated. It's needed. You have to understand how complicated it is, or you won't say things like, let's just have a vaccine, which is only currently 39% effective, and why? You need to think about why. Finally, there's a long struggle within public health between two visions of how we make people healthy, how you make a good place, a good world. One is attacking the disease, killing the mosquitoes, drugs for the parasite, right? Raising money for those specific interventions against malaria in specific or AIDS specifically. And another vision is saying, give people houses with screen doors, give people jobs so they can make money. Give people crops that they can grow so they can nourish their children. Give people education so they can understand how to care for their environment. And these two visions of public health have long been in conflict. The Italians, Grassi and Selle, believed in that notion of public health. But the Americans, who liked EDT and, and chloroquine, believed in the latter. And this became one of the ways that got played out in how to run the world in the eradication campaign between, really, the two Cold War partners. Okay, but there's other questions. For example, when we say public engagement, who do we mean? Us, in this room? What if we all don't want to do it? What sort of impact would that have? How many different voices need to be a part of it, and how should we judge those voices? Is it just up to the people in Burkina Faso or Mali or Uganda? What is our role? How do we do this? Is consent even possible? Burkini Faso has had revolution after revolution after coup after coup. The median age is 17. There's 70 different languages spoken. The name Burkini Faso is an amalgam of two of these languages. There's Shia, there's Sunni, there's Catholic, there's, um, there's no Jews, but you know, there's animus. And <laughs> there's a long history of French colonialism. Some people speak French, some people don't speak French. There's been 11 different coups since 1958, one achieved independence. And in fact, um, only 29% actually attend school, even though school is theoretically free. Books are not free, and your teacher isn't free. So what does it mean to have a community engagement or consent in this context? It's Burkini Faso. So we adjust what we're thinking. We think about informed consent. 
It is an ecology devastated by poverty. And one of the things with 90% of the population engaging in subsistence agriculture, droughts have a severe um, negative impact on daily life. Many of the trees have been cut down. Um, there's lo loss of diversity, loss of habitat, all the time species ending their, ending their existence, all the time in Burkini Faso. And one of the things that happens is every year in Burkini Faso, large numbers of people, as it were, caravan, go out to work in Ghana and then come back, bringing the parasites back and forth between the two countries. Now, what's the right act given those realities? And what makes it so? Do we have the right... Maybe we even have an obligation to intervene into the lives of other people, especially if it might hurt them. If you do a gene drive and it stops malaria for a time, and if it comes back, then everyone with acquired immunity will be sicker faster with no defenses. Can you do that? Should you do that? Given the fact that the, that the point of gene drives is to spread, should we or the communities make the final decision? What if, say, Mexico decides to do it? What does San Diego say? Right? Or if San Diego does it, what does Mexico say? Because mosquitoes don't know borders. Third, the world is largely unknowable. In Jewish theological tradition, the world is more dark than light. And we don't know about gene drives. We really don't know. Can we act in the face of that kind of deep level of contingency and uncertainty and incomplete knowledge? Quite honestly, if you capture a malaria, malariologist, a scientist who studies malaria, you capture them, they're rare, but you can get them, they will tell you they're not quite sure how it works that the, the chain of events that creates infection begins. They're not really sure. It's uncertain, right? Malaria is now concentrated in places racked by war and by poverty and social chaos. Malaria loves chaos. What's our duty in light of the fact of this history? The, these facts and the fact that colonialism really set the stage in a place like Mali, in a place like Burkina Faso, in a place like Ghana, when the West took the gold and took the young men and the young women, took generation after generation of people who could work to make their countries rich and fecund, What's our duty to give back in light of that history? What duties of history are suggested by our relationship as Westerners to Africa? And finally, what virtues ought guide our actions? I'm going to talk about fidelity, and I'm going to talk about humility in just a minute. Theological issues. Now, there's two, th two traditional readings of how one might look at this, this event of the gene drive. One reading is that nature is a gift from God, and there's something about the natural world that is sacred because of its ingiftedness. In Catholic moral theology, there's two books of wisdom, both the scripture and the book of nature. And that natural law that devolves has to be respected. Humans are not able to understand, says this theological argument, the full import of their actions. And why? Because humans are fallen, or humans are unredeemed, right? If you are an animist, like many Africans are, because we don't understand how each object is imbued with spirit and what our, our proper relationship to it might be. But humans in this world are so failed that the gift of nature could be corrupted by our actions and by our master, our urging, and our urging for mastery. The second reading of the same problem is that the text reminds us that the world is unfinished. 
a Jewish reading, a Muslim reading, says that the world is yet unredeemed with a Messiah who has not yet come and is perhaps broken and perhaps needs repair, and that perhaps the human task is to be a partner in the completion and the repair of the world, tikkun olam, and that's how you make the universe a moral universe, is to participate in these acts of repair and justice. In many Catholic texts, there's a preferential option for the poor. For Gustavo Gutierrez, we should stand with the poor in history, on the outskirts of the city as Jesus did. And that's one reading of these texts. And the final thing to remember in all religious readings is that the children of Africa are our children too. It is just an accident of history that you're not there, that I'm not there, that I'm raising, I raised my children where they never once had to worry about malaria. What a privilege it is and how easily we can forget that the children who face malaria every day are ours as well. Are we really better safe than sorry? Well, who's we? What does it mean to say we can't go ahead because better safe than sorry? Who is we? Who's safe in our present situation? And on the other hand, many Jewish texts say you can't turn from the blood of your neighbor. Testimony in Hebrew scriptures. The precautionary principle, better safe than sorry, is an endorsement of the present order of the status quo, of this system of justice, which in itself, I might add, is a theological endorsement, a theological argument as well, and one that I think our texts reject. Emmanuel Levinas, who I bring with me to every talk, (laughs) is a Jewish philosopher who thinks about what it is to face the other. And he says the face of the other commands you to look into the eyes of the other, to look into the face of the other, is to be commanded by the command that shall not kill, that you can't allow the death of the other, and that the interpretation of God's command comes through the face of the other to say, don't let me die. That's the first and most essential command. This totality of the world, the way we just go about our lives, driving our cars on the freeways of California, is broken by the event of the face When we're confronted by the face of the other, the other reminds us of our absolute, unlimited, unlimited duty to him. What virtue should guide our acts? What should we ask as humanists, philosophers, bioethicists, of our scientists? That they be faithful. That fidelity is the core virtue of this project. If we are to interfere in the lives of others, we can never leave. We cannot do what WHO did in 1956. We can't ever leave, and we should be able to demand that. If you take on a village, you're staying in the village. Come what may. And secondly, humility. All this might be wrong. It is such beautiful science. It is such exquisite work, and we all want it so urgently to succeed. But we might be wrong, and it might fail. And people of faith understand what it is to fail and then to persist. Finally, may we make the world? Well, apparently, yes. Here's a quote from the 1900s of um, commenting on the physician, Richard Ross, who discovered how malaria works. Ross was sort of a failed poet, but he wrote this, I find thy cunning seeds, he wrote to his wife, oh, million murdering death, when he first dissected his mosquito and understood how it worked. And for people who commented in the Indian medical service, they believe that death will be expatriated. The cost of decay will be removed. Immortality will be inverted. Finally, man will master the forces of nature, and they will become themselves. 
architects of systems, manufacturer of worlds. So for John Evans, who's thinking, oh, no. <laughs> um, for all of us in modernity, we're worried by that statement because we're worried about mastery. But for millions of people around the world, this looks like partnership. It looks like a world that apparently we've made and we have to take responsibility for. So why is this issue important to you in San Diego? It's because of global warming and the instability of mosquito ranges. So this, this could be me. This is Malibu last week. Um, this could be me evacuating with my family along the coast. But we don't face the real brunt of climate change yet in this country, though maybe the people in paradise tonight understand how dire it's become. This is um, in India. And this is a, 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 period, a part of India that hasn't had a flood in 830 years and overwhelmed by this flood last year. And why is this? Because the impacts of climate change will disproportionately affect the poorest. They will disproportionately affect the people who haven't created... This is a map of the largest CO2 emitters. Right? Here we are in the very darkest of colors. And highest GDP per capita. That's us again in black. And here's the estimate of the malaria world burden and the estimate of world poverty, right? Malaria, a disease of chaos, a disease of poverty. This is the possible range of mosquitoes. If in certain maps of climate change, this is only with a 2%, a 2 degree increase. Here's the possible range of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, Anopheles mosquitoes, lived in all of these areas in yellow. See up there by the Arctic Circle? This is the Anopheles range in the U.S. You see, we have our very own. And here's the problem. It's more than just an interesting talk or an interesting thing to worry about malaria that other people suffer, though that's critically important. But should you waver in your devotion to this concern, mosquitoes ranges are growing, including Gambi mosquitoes. Regulatory authorities have been cut back. Oversight is reduced. Ships are not expected as when they come up from Latin America and Africa as often as they, they have been in the past. Global warming drives migration of refugees that carry falcipian in their bodies, vivax in their bodies. Warmer weather speeds transmission of replication. The cycle, instead of being two weeks, is 10 days, is seven days for the, um, for the replication cycle. And malaria, again, a disease of poverty, a disease of chaos, like we've seen when climate change goes awry. So during this talk of about 50 minutes, 25 people, usually children under the age of five, usually in West Africa have died because a child dies every two minutes. Every two minutes, a child dies. And this is why we need to talk about malaria. We need to think about gene dives always in the context of malaria and the duties of history that confront us again in the face of children like these. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.